Bird's Eye View is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find more podcasts like this at BaltimoreSportsReport.com. BaltimoreSportsReport.com. Welcome back to Bird's Eye View. When it comes to the Orioles, this weekly podcast is your official source for a lack of insight and basis opinion. Today is October 13th, 2014. This is episode 99. I am Scott Magnus, and I'm here with my color commentator, my big boy, my... Christopher Columbus. Hmm. I'm like, nah, not feeling that. It's not a real holiday. It's Columbus Day. Traffic was light today, so I do appreciate that. I'm here with Jake English. Um, you're most likely listening to us on birdseyeviewbaltimore.com. However, you may have also found us at baltimoresportsreport.com under the network tab. Um, I recommend going there and listening to all of our sister wife podcasts, including the BSR podcast, the Baltimoreans, and uh, occasionally the Spastics as well when they decide to go out there and do one of those syndicated internet broadcasts. Um, Not to mention what the puck and the call. Yeah, that's that's hockey and football we're not going to get into that because this is a baseball podcast um you should also be checking us out on various other third-party applications such as miro stitcher double twist and i suppose itunes and it'd be great if anyone out there should be following us and be giving us reviews on both of those uh, or all four of those uh applications you should also be checking us on social media you can find us on facebook facebook.com slash bvcast on google plus and most importantly you should be following us on twitter at bird's eye view b a l with that, Jake, I think it's time we delve into the drink of the week. And, oh, it's necessary this week. Oh, no. My my drink of the week is a water. I'm not allowed anywhere near alcohol this week. Really? Oh, no. It, no. All right. Well, Jake, I am going with a fine glass of scotch tonight. Can I say? It requires a hard drink for a hard night. It's a good choice. Yes. It is a solid choice. With that, how about some twat? This week on the Twitter um, Jake, we had backhanded compliments galore going into the ALCS series. Casey Stern, who is uh, the studio analyst for TBS, um, basically posted, off to Baltimore for our MLB on TBS coverage of the ALCS. Two exciting freight trains driven by a belief about to collide. Hashtag Royals, hashtag Orioles. Driven by belief. Thanks, guys. Yep, thanks. thanks. They're really not too it. good baseball no, teams. Nope, nope. They're They're just, just, they believe they can do well. little trains yep. that think they can. Yep. That's really kind of silly. Yes. All right. The next comes from Jeremy Kahn, who is uh, he's on the radio, right? Is that he, what he does? He is on the radio, and um, well, Javi knows him pretty well, apparently. All right. Fine. Yeah. So uh, he tweeted out this week, I'm hearing a J.J. Hardy extension will be announced soon, dot, 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 more likely later today. Guess Broke what? the news. Yeah. J.J. Hardy. Hardy extended he'll be an oriole for three additional years plus a vesting option for the fourth which is on at bats okay cool can we just take a quick aside here what are your thoughts on the on the extension yay i i'm right there with you look i hope i still love it in three years he's a middle you know a a middle infielder in his 30s 
I don't think this is going to be a bad contract for the Orioles. I love every bit of it. Now, value-wise, actually, it's a really great contract for the Orioles looking at his uh, zip value and everything. So I think the Orioles knocked it out of the park of getting this done um, for a very market-favorable deal. Um, I don't think it favors Hardy, and I don't think it favors the Orioles one way or the other, but it's good to shore up that left side of the defense. Yeah, I love it. Okay, sorry. My aside is done. Um, Okay, next one. Um, This is a whoops on my part. Whoops. Yep. Um, Baltimore Sports Report posted, uh, you know, our, our coverage from last week's podcast. And uh, unfortunately, Ryan Wagner, who sh- you can follow at rwags614, um, kind of gave it a listen to and uh, heard me say, greatest claim to fame in life is a pause. Real nice, guys. Real nice. Ha ha ha. Yeah. I got to be careful what I say, apparently, on this podcast. Look, I, I... I'm not used to people, of you know, that I call out being able to listen to this podcast. I'm really frustrated by this. Ryan Wagner, you were not one of the six people in their mother's basements listening to this show. You, you, This shouldn't have happened. It yeah. shouldn't have happened. The man wears a bow tie. I'm supposed to show a little bit more respect to a man in a bow tie. Hey, I love a man in a bow tie. Me too. Um, next tweet comes from Dan Zabrowski, and you should be following him at Dan Zabrowski. Uh, and this is one of my favorite tweets, probably of the entire season. Um, this might be going into the tweet of the year category. And it's, I think in old Washington Senators games, instead of having extra innings, they should have had a vice president's break the tie. Nice. That's nice. That's just the kind of humor that I enjoy. Now, is this the guy that had the uh, the presidential bracket? Yes, it is. Okay, so he's he's double dipping into his own material. At he, this he's point. double dipping into his own material, but you have to admit, Jake, that's a pretty good that's a pretty good one. All right, I like it. Yeah. Uh, next is from Rob Nyer at Rob Nyer. Uh, among fifty umpires with at least twenty five hundred ball strike calls this season, ALCS crew chief Joe West ranks dead last. And that's with, in terms of accuracy of calls. With a link, a link to the uh, businessweek.com uh, uh, article that, that shows that. Woof. And coming into the ALCS, Jeff Zimmerman, who you can follow at Jeff W. Zimmerman. And he does a lot of the baseball heat maps and also does things for uh, Baseball Savant, which is an excellent website to go to. Um, had this tweet. Saturday storyline, Royals slash Orioles did a better job of handling the long layoff than the Orioles slash Royals, and that is why they won Friday. Yeah, pretty much. That's exactly pretty much what was the story for both Friday's game and Saturday's game. So um, kudos to Jeff Zimmerman for breaking it two days before the games were even played. Yeah, that's uh, that's well done. Always mock the narrative. Yes. So with that, um, I, I think it's time that we get some retrospective on the first two games of the LCS. All right, but look, more people than those six uh, in, in their mother's basement are listening. Can we can we class this up a little bit? Let's get classy. Welcome to Masterpiece. This is Alistair Cookie. This is part three in a six-installment series entitled Vignettes of a Tortured Soul. If you missed last week's program on West African health officials, please visit our website at masterpiece.org. This week we cross the Atlantic to America, where fans of sport, and specifically those of Baltimore's Major League Baseball Orioles, find themselves in a devastating two-games-to-none deficit in a penultimate championship series. As those fans attempt to collect themselves and to move forward, we find ourselves in part three of Vignettes of a Tortured Soul. 
fan number one. I told you so. This is a terrible team. God, this team sucks. I told you this would happen. I told you this This would happen. This team won 96 games and swept the ALDS in three. This is a good team. They're just hitting a buzzsaw here in the ALCS. You stop making excuses. This team can't hit. This team can't pitch. And Buck Showalter makes terrible in-game decisions. What? This rotation has been the best in baseball since, like, June. And the bullpen? Don't even get me started on the bullpen. Man, I told you. I told you that having a baby would screw up Zach Britton. Fan number two, overconfident and or in denial, Orioles will win in six. All right, all right, all right. Two-game deficit, no big deal. Just make sure they clinch at home in front of the real, real Orioles fans. This sucks. I wish I had your confidence. This series has been horrifying so far. Hey, hey, hey. Don't lose faith. All it takes is four straight wins, and we're in the World Series, baby. We won't stop. We won't stop. Oh, come on, man. We won't. It might be time to pack it in. It doesn't look like this team has what it takes to beat the Royals in this series. What kind of fan are you? Why don't you just hop back off the bandwagon? Oh, jeez. Fan number three. So sad. Soul completely crushed. Hey, man, hey. Wait, is that the jersey you wore to game two? Have you changed? I feel so empty. (laughs) All right, you are scaring me. (laughs) Dude, your living room is full of takeout Chinese boxes and beer boxes. Did you go to work this week? I just don't understand. Why are they doing this to me? When I close my eyes, all I can see are my own tears. <laughs> all right. Hey, hey, buddy. Hey, hey, let's let's get you. Oh, God. Have you not showered? Oh, God. This is not good. Fan number four. A player on my team is terrible and needs to be tarred and feathered. God, I can't believe that Ryan Flaherty cost us that game. I hate that guy. I hope his whole extended family gets herpes. What? He misplayed that ball, and that led to the scoring of the run. Oh, well, yeah, but there were six runs scored in that game. I mean, it would have been nice if the pitching had been a little more resilient, like not giving up two runs in the first. Come on, man. Don't make excuses. This guy sucks, and he should get immediately cut. I'd rather have Jimmy Paredes out there. Hell, I'd rather have Wilson freaking Betamine out there right now. Flaherty is killing us. Well, I would say the balls really just fell in for the Royals in game two. It was like death by a thousand cuts, you know? Everything that could go wrong did. No, Ryan Flaherty is a worthless piece of If I ever see him on the street, I'm going to put my boot so far up his that I really wish I could just skull him. So he's a fucking motherfucker instead. What a motherfucker. Yeah, uh, good talk. Fan number five. Record a podcast and try to make sense of it all. Well, Scott, this series has sucked. What are we going to talk about on the podcast this week? I feel so empty. 
Yep, yep. This uh, this show is going to be hard to put together. I just don't understand. Why are they doing this to me? When I close my eyes, all I can see are my own tears. Cry, baby, cry. Make your mother sigh. She's old enough to know better. The king of Marigold was in the kitchen cooking breakfast for the queen. The queen was in the parlor playing piano for the children of the king. Cry, baby, cry. Make another sign. She's old enough to know better. So cry, baby, cry. Well, for as optimistic as we all were last week, uh, things hit a bit of a sour note this past weekend. The Orioles went and squandered away the alleged home field advantage and put themselves in an 0-2 hole to begin the ALCS. And, uh, hey, we're really good at the at the bad stuff, so let's go through what went wrong. Yeah, there's a lot to go through for the bad. Um you know, the starting pitching, I think we'll start with. And but honestly, they just didn't go very deep in the games. Both Tillman and Norris both only went four and a third innings pitch. And it wasn't like, you know, they didn't really give up a lot of hits and they just got the pitch count worked on them. Um, they gave up, you know, Tillman gave up seven hits. Norris gave up nine hits. Tillman also gave up uh, two walks during that period of two. So they put the same amount of people on base as well. So just a really poor performance by both of them. Uncharacteristic in terms of how much they got shellacked. Um, specifically with line drives as well. Um, and, and the Royals are a very good contact team. I just don't think they expected Norris and Tillman to get hit around as much as they did. Yeah. And, and the thing was, is that they got behind early. I mean, th- this, um, this trend that Tillman had for a while of getting beat up in the first inning, uh, was something we talked a lot about during the series, uh, season, probably too much, but it manifested itself perfectly here in the ALCS game one. Yeah. It, both Norris and Tillman were able to come back, but again, they were never able to get that shutdown inning and really get deep into the game. Um, it, it was just extended at bats. Um, and especially with Tillman, it was okay, two great at bats, and then oh, I would walk somebody. Um, and again, not being able to get to that one, two, three inning really put pressure on Buckshaw Walter to say, okay, now there's a man on first or now there's a man on second. I'm going to have to go to my bullpen and not allow Tillman and Norris to get through this inning. Um, and that forced the hand of bringing in a player like Kevin Gossman, who had to work in long relief. And, you know, let's go to some of our relievers that are in their bullpen now, since the relievers really were the story of the pitching staff um, throughout this this series so far. Yeah, and, and I think the, the story of the game, you know, beyond the story of the, both games, beyond how the starters performed, was that this vaunted uh, great bullpen faltered in the late innings and, and gave up runs. And, and I mean... Our vaunted bullpen, not theirs. Unfortunately, it was supposed to go the other way around. But uh, you know, the the Royals scored runs late on guys that we are used to not not breaking. Sure. Now, coming back to a good portion of it, we did have some really good innings in the middle portion of the games from players like Kevin Gossman specifically. Brad Brock was also very good. Tommy Hunter had some good appearances, and then Andrew Miller was absolutely filthy, just like we've expected him to be. You know, our bridge guys, you know, that's supposed to be the weakness of any team, and I I thought our bridge guys were phenomenal. Very solid, yep. They, you know, kept us in the game and allowed our offense to chip back into each of those games. 
And then we came to the ninth inning or the tenth inning, and you had Zach Burton and Darren O'Day, who had some fairly disastrous outings. Um, Zach Burton coming out for these past two games has a 6.75 ERA and a 3.75 whip to his name over just an inning and a third. And Darren O'Day has a 20.25 ERA with a 2.25 whip to go along with his name. Two of your best pitchers um, in the bullpen absolutely getting shellacked um, over this over these last two games. Well, Britton did it to himself in the first game. He, uh, you know, he, he threw twelve or thirteen straight balls at one point yeah. and loaded up the bases. And at that point, I, I mean, against a team that has was dead last in Major League Baseball in terms of walks. Yeah, it, so it was just it was horrifying. I mean, anybody who watched that game and didn't immediately think of the ALDS game uh, one yep. uh, from twenty twelve wasn't paying attention. Yeah, it was very similar to that. And like I said, the fact that Kansas City was going up there and saying, I'm going to keep my bat on my shoulder until you make a pitch. And the one thing I think is interesting, coming back to the Burton one, was the Royals were alleged, uh, putting down saying, we're going to bunt. And then he still walked around them, even though they were trying to give away an out. And that's just inexcusable. Yeah. I mean, it turned you know what could have been one run into what could have been 10 runs. You know, it, it just it got crazy. Correct. Now, fortunately for during ASCS game number one, um, the Orioles were able to get out of it via a nice little play by Steve Pierce from at first base to go to Hunley to get the force out at home. And then Darren O'Day coming in to shut down in the ninth inning, allowing the Orioles to have a chance in the bottom of the ninth and get into extra innings if necessary. Um, but Darren O'Day did give up a home run in that 10th inning, um, which proved to be fatal um, for the Orioles really long term because, again, it, it put the game up 6-5. to five. Now, the Orioles did come back and score another run. Um, well, the thing was that O'Day gave up that home run, and then Mattis gave up a home run right afterward, right. and the Orioles were able to overcome the one home run, but they they couldn't match two. Yeah, the only thing I'll point out, too, it, it is when you have a three-run lead as a closer, I think Holland approached that in completely different than he would have been if it was just a one-run game. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I realize the Orioles got that one run back, and it's like, oh, you know, it's Mattis's fault. But that inning changes completely with it being a three-run deficit as opposed to a one-run deficit. So I think we've got to throw it out the window. Sure. Um, but, Jake, Zach Burton and Darren O'Day, the two people I want to talk about, and in, in my opinion, I don't think O'Day really is the one that we should be harping on. Um, I'm less concerned about him because, you know, he gave a home run to a lefty. He's got a proclivity to be worse against lefties. Everyone knows this. He's been very poor against them throughout the second half. The fact that Gordon got up there and hit the home run doesn't really surprise me, and especially considering that Gordon is a very, very good player. Um, Zach Burton, on the other hand, is really concerning to me. Like we just talked about, his command during game number one was absolutely atrocious. And then coming in for game number two, I went over to Brooks Baseball, and I wanted to take a look at Zach Burton's sinker performance. Um, and his vertical movement, which we know has been so good for the out the season, has been around a 4.71-inch drop for the entire year. At, at- Mid-90 velocity. That's just ridiculous. 96 to 97 mile per hour velocity. That is correct. So in this game for ALCS game number two, it dropped all the way down to a 2.7 inch vertical movement, which means that it's not giving as much movement, which allows the batters to put a lot more force and hit it for line drives, as opposed to grounding it into the ground and really not putting any power on it. Now, the hits that were against Zach Burton were all ground balls, but they were well hit ground balls right up through the through, you know, on the line and right through the shortstop and uh, third base hole. So, yes, they were ground balls, but the you know, force of them really exemplifies that something was not working for his sinker that night. 
Um, I went back and looked at his records. The last time he had a vertical drop that low was on April 21st against Boston, and this was prior to him being a closer. And he gave up two hits with one earned run in a non-closing situation. So again, a poor performance by Zach Burton in that one game. But again, it's a really extreme outlier for this one game. Well, let's let's go ahead and make our reservations at the Holiday Inn Express um, and and play uh, you know psychiatrist slash baseball uh, guru here. Do you think that this is a young guy getting his first taste of the playoffs, not matching the moment? Do you think this is just a matter of him hitting a wall because he's not used to you know pitching this much throughout the year? What, what do you think was it about this particular game or series of games for Zach Britton to hit the wall? Because remember, he also gave up a, a meaningless run in ALC, uh, ALDS game three. Correct. Um, the ALDS game number three, I think, is is important to note because the sinker um, vertical movement was still there. Um, but again, the pitchers were elevated. So from a pitch location standpoint, that was a bigger deal. Um, and that's why they were able to be hit for the doubles. My main concern with Britain with this game is why are we all of a sudden seeing this vertical movement drop? Um, I think it's more temperature related than anything else. Um, I think that might be part of it where he just couldn't get the grip for it. That's the only thing that makes sense to me. Gremlins. Yeah. I, I, I gremlins. think it's gremlins. Yeah. Um, but Jake, you know, if we're talking about gremlins, there must have been gremlins on the field because the Royals seem to be getting all the lucky breaks in this series. Um, let's go to ALCS game number one. You had Alex Gordon's broken bat hit down the right field line, leading to three RBIs. Um, and that allowed even Billy Butler to come in from first base and score. So that just tells you how quirky that hit was. Um, and then you also had ALCS game number two, where in the first inning, Hosmer has a broken bat loop single over JJ Hardy's head, leading to two RBIs to opposite field. And it was a pitch up in the zone inside. So it was up and inside, and he still blooped it out, which is sheer power. Yeah, and and look, this is not. Uh, I want to be very careful. This is not me saying, oh, you know, the baseball gods are against us or whatever. I, I just, especially in ALCS game two, I felt like there were just a lot of hit them where they ain't bloops that added up, and they added up because the Royals did all the right things. They got runners, they extended innings, they you know they passed the baton. Look, I'm not I'm not saying they got lucky. It just seemed like whenever something bad happened. It was a situation where the Orioles had two str- or two outs, you know, they were trying to wrap up in a bat and something fluky like that happened. There were so few, you know, solidly struck, you know, demoralizing hits. Instead, it was the, it was just the little bloops that d- d- fell in in exactly the right place. Sure. Well, let's come back to game two. And um, speaking about those opposite field hits, Jake, out of the 13 hits that Kansas City had during game two, six of them were to opposite field, with three of them being singles and three of them being doubles during and, that game. And it was the first six of seven. Yes. That was the crazy part. Yeah. So, Jake, there were a lot of opposite field hits. And looking at Bud Norris's pitch selection for that game, it wasn't like he was favoring to the outside strongly that would allow the batters to basically hit the opposite field hits. Like I was just talking about with Hosmer, um, he had a broken bat bloop over the shortstop's head. But again, it was high and inside, which again doesn't scream up, I can turn this ball and shoot it to the opposite field. Even that being said, you normally don't see that many hits go to opposite field. The uh, Royals averaged about 20% of their plate appearances hitting it to opposite field too. So this is an extreme example. And the BABIP for opposite field hits for that game was 545. It is an extreme number. I, I've got to give credit you know, to you know some of the approaches. Hosmer um, was flukish, but Kane... 
um, who doubled in the second inning, was in the lower middle of the plate, and he kind of turned it. And Butler also had an outside portion of the plate, and he also nailed it out as, uh, as well to right field. So those are two players that you know definitely had the talent and were able to redirect the ball as they saw fit. Yeah, no, I, I don't. I don't want to be accused of taking anything away from the Royals because I think both teams are are excellent. Obviously, they're in the ALCS. That's why they're here. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm with you. But like I said, it was just a little screwy. Um, not to mention, too, when you're dealing with the Orioles, yes, the Orioles are a very good defensive team, but they're a very good defensive team because they set themselves up correctly in the field. Unlike Kansas City, Kansas City can set themselves on the field, but let's just say there's an opposite side field or a ball is hit to the gap. The ability for the range of the outfielders to get into position and catch those balls allows them to you know, make up for, up. Oh, you hit it opposite field, I can still get to that ball. So again, that's why we always harp about range is such a critical component. And again, yes, Nick Marcakis is a great outfielder, but his range is not the same as these Kansas City outfielders. And that really showed up these opposite field hits. Nick Marcakis wasn't able to get to them. Yeah, I thought it was kind of interesting. It kind of showed the, the tail of the tape there for our outfield because Jones made an athletic play, mm-hmm. which was excellent. Yes. Um, it didn't obviously make the highlight reels the way that Kane's performance did because we didn't win the ball game. Um, but the other thing that surprised me was that there was a ball that uh, Diaz short hopped mm-hmm. instead of going after. And it could have just been because he doesn't have enough of a rapport with Jones to know that he's got safety help over the top or whatever. Sure. But he he short hopped the ball instead of going for it in a way that kind of surprised me because I, I thought more of Diaz as a, as a defender than, than what that particular play showed. He short hopped it, but he also made an awkward play to it, allowing the ball to kind of skip off of him, which allowed the runner also to go from first to third as well. So if he just gets in front of that and allows it to come into him, then it's only meant on first and second as opposed to first and third. Probably doesn't matter, but... I think it's only magnified because of what the Royals were doing in comparison. Correct. Yes, I agree. Um, But, you know, Jake, you know, I I basically broke this out, and I'm going to come back to the whole Babbitt argument. And, Jake, if you look at ex-Babbitt, which is expected Babbitt, you basically look at, you know, how many line drives you had, how many ground balls you had, and how much of fielding uh, fly balls you had. And, you know, the Royals actually, their Babbitt matched up pretty closely to being what they should have been getting in the first game. Um, it was like three, a little over 300. And in the fourth game, in the second game, it was a little over 400 for, for their expected versus their actual. Whereas in the first game, the Orioles far exceeded what their Babbitt should have been. They had an actual Babbitt of 424, but their expected Babbitt was only 240. And then in the, in the second game, the Orioles pretty much were exactly what they were supposed to be, right around like a 260 Babbitt. So I think they it's, were who we thought yeah. they were. So I just think it's really interesting that, yes, we are saying that there were some flukish plays here, but on the whole, the Babbitt Dubs seem to line up with a lot of line drive plays by the Kansas City Royals. And again, for being such a good contact team, the Royals are just doing a really good job of making solid contact and also using the entire play to their advantage. If they're going to go outside, we're going to take it to the opposite field if we have to. Yeah, doing those things that uh, that good teams do to win. Um, we'll, we'll probably revisit this topic um, deeper in the playoffs or maybe postseason because I, I, want, I would like to think about the way that Kansas City has gotten this far, how how they uh, won in the in the season, but also how they're winning in the postseason, and talk about whether this is a shift of how baseball should be played. You know, we're at a, a point now where the runs are down. It's obviously back to a pitcher's era now. The uh, the effects of of performance enhancing drugs is, is somewhat diminished, and I wonder if we're going to stop getting if we're going to start getting away from the you know, strikeouts are okay. 
the on-base percentage isn't a big deal because I'm a slugger because these Royals are are doing everything else right. You know, they're they're putting guys on base, they're going first to third, they're, you know, sacrificing over, they're doing all that, they're doing it with speed, they're doing it with defense, and these are also kind of cheap uh skills in the in the grand scheme of things as it comes to salaries. I wonder if this won't in some uh, way be a model for other clubs that are trying to build contenders. Sure. Um, you know, speaking about, you know, BABIP and offense, the Orioles offensively have been outslugging this series compared to the Royals. The Royals are posting a 906 OPS versus the Orioles 712. The Orioles have four home runs versus one home run. However, you know, we're going to come right to the heart of the order. And, you know, we were giving Jones a little bit of grief last series, but Cruz and Jones both have had a pretty all right um, series so far in this lineup based off of OPS and also WPA, which again is win probability added. Um, however, right below them, Pearson Hardy and the number five and number six hole have really struggled to drive in runs. Hardy's also had four strikeouts and eight at bats, and Pearson only has one um, hit so far in this series. In terms of win probability added, Steve Pearce stands with a negative 0.32, and JJ Hardy stands with a negative 0.34. Um, definitely not something you want to see um, your five and six hole hitters having at this time. Yeah, certainly not what Alex Gordon has at this moment as the number six hitter for the Kansas City Royals. Sure, until Jones's home run, I felt like he had been really quiet through the entire playoffs. Uh, and and if I remember correctly, he was also offensively quiet during the ALDS in 2012. And uh, I know we talked about it. What was it? Two weeks ago, maybe it was last week. Uh, I was I was worried about you know maybe. Maybe Jones is is uh, is not going to show up. So I was really glad to see that home run from him. Of course, it, it came in a, a losing effort, but uh, it changed the way I felt about the middle of the order. Yeah, I'm not too concerned about Jones. I think Jones is making some really good contact on balls, too. And like you said, he made a great defensive play as well. But there's two surprises in the lineup that have had some really big clutch hits, and I think that's Ryan Flaherty and Alejandro Deaza. Two surprising players that have had some really clutch hits and had some really high win probability added during this time. Uh, in terms of OPS for the series so far, Ryan Flaherty is at a .819 OPS, and Alejandro Diazza is at a 1.056 OPS. So that's some two solid contributions from your number two and your number seven hitter. And, and frankly, the way that Flaherty has been for most of the season, you, you basically are getting to the point where it's like you know a National League lineup at the end there. Yeah. Oh, oh, it's Flaherty, and he's been turning over the lineup very effectively. Uh, giving us a lot from the bottom that that we need because, as you indicated, the five and six guys aren't doing anything. So I think this has been a really good series so far for Ryan Flaherty. The only problem with Ryan Flaherty doing so well is that right below him, Nick Hundley and Caleb Joseph really haven't been doing anything. And uh, Jonathan Scope, again, has been absolutely abysmal at offensively with only posting a 393 OPS. Um, Again, I was on the uh, Pine Tar Press podcast, and they asked me to drop Jonathan Scope. And again, I said he was going to be a complete wild card for this series. But I wasn't expecting big things from Jonathan Scope. And needless to say, nothing offensively has been really impressive with Jonathan Scope besides the ball hitting off of his head, um, leading to him getting, you know, being able to be safe at third base when he was actually picked off the bag, basically. I, I tell you what, if Buck Showalter had other options at third base, I don't think that uh, Jonathan Scope would be in the starting lineup for the playoffs. In second base. No, because Ryan Flaherty has to play third. Uh, right. If he was able to uh, plug in, say, a struggling slugger into the third base slot, I, be interesting. I don't think Jonathan Scope is a starter in the playoffs. That'd be interesting. Just a thought. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um. Continuing on, Jake, um, you know, 
it's just been a mixed bag of emotions and everything that is constantly occurring here throughout this this series so far. So I think we need to break down how we're feeling right now. Feelings Nothing more than feelings Trying to forget my Feelings of love Well, you're dropped. Oh, good lord. Rolling down on my face. I thought we promised no more singing. And and, and frankly, if I'm going to feel bad about baseball, I don't want to feel bad about myself. Feelings of love. All right, so, Scotty, <laughs> how are you feeling with the whole we suck in the ALCS thing? Um, All right, I got to be honest with you. Uh, game two ends, and... That whole day coming up to it, I'm like, you know what? If we don't lose, if we lose today, it's not, you know, an absolutely disaster. It could happen. I'm going to brace for it. It's not the end of the series. They could easily come back and win two out of three in Kansas City and bring the series home for six or seven. And then the gut punch at the end, again, two nights in a row, I just basically, you know, collapsed in my chair and I'm like, God, this could be the last time I see Camden Yards this year for this team. And this team has been so good. And it was just very depressing and heartaching. And I'm going to admit, I got a little little teary. Did it get a little dusty? I got, it got a little dusty. I got a little teary. I didn't really expect it. I mean, I hadn't got teary throughout the whole season. Like, even when they clinched the East, uh, I really didn't feel that much. I'm like, okay, it's just a step to the next thing. And just knowing that it was coming possibly to an end, it's just like, not now. It's not supposed to end this way. Uh, I, the, the end of ALCS Game 2 was literally the worst the worst I have ever felt about baseball. You know, it, it was just like you, you said, gut punch. That's a perfect way to describe it. I'm not sure if I can go that far, but Jeffrey Mayer. No, I, this was the worst that, that I felt because we've been waiting so long for it. Okay. Uh, Jeffrey Mayer again is the whole situation of, I knew at that point that life would never be fair ever again. <laughs> when, when that happened, I didn't have any, any idea that, that I was going to have to wait 17 years again to see it. But the thing about the AL, ALCS game two, you know, being down two games to none, just like you said, you know, gosh, I guess this is the last time I'm going to get to go to the ballpark. I wondered to myself, am I going to be able to look back at this season and enjoy all the great things that happened? Cause, cause there were, there were a lot, there have been a lot of good things that have happened, but I'm so, so disappointed that, I mean, I, I'm just not sure how long it's going to take me to be able to push that aside. Let me ask you the hard question. Yeah. And this is the thing that I'm struggling with. I was pretty negative after they lost that yeah. second game be, because I haven't seen anything that, sh- that makes me believe that the Orioles will go ahead and win in Kansas city. Absolutely. I, I haven't seen anything from the Orioles that, that makes me believe that they're going to turn it around. They're going to turn around. Um, and the environment's going to be harsher and all that stuff. Now, Having said that, again, I, though, even though home field doesn't really equate to anything, <laughs> it was only like a four percent advantage. So again, it didn't matter for us. Didn't but, matter for us, but normally it doesn't matter for anything. So continue on. E- even 
because I was feeling so bad, I, I couldn't tell if it was just me being negative or, or an honest assessment of the way things were. Do you think there's any reason for us to hope that the Orioles can turn this series around at this point? Oh, absolutely. There's no question in my mind that we can still turn it around. Um, if you actually even look at the Fangrass projections, which, again, were very negative on the Orioles. Um, they were only giving them about a 40% chance based off the Fangrass zips and steamers projections. Even after losing the first two games, they are only down to like 16%, which I thought it was amazing. I was just like, oh, I thought it might be a lot lower than that based off of you know what it would be. But I was just like, that's actually not too bad. Um, so I have full faith that you know this Orioles team has lost series before. They've been swept, and people are like, oh, they're dead. But this team is different than any other team that I've seen in Baltimore. They've got a heart, and they're willing to come back now. They could easily go to Kansas City and lose the next two games. But I just don't see it happening. This team, I think, is going to fight back and do as best they can. And again, it's not like these games have been blowouts. They've gone down to the last inning. See, I can't tell, Scott. And and I I hear you. I'm with you. I, I just can't tell if that's me being the Orioles apologist that I think the both of us know that I am. Or whether it's, I'm thinking more like doubting Thomas. Or whether it's <laughs> it's it's real analysis because the thing is that I I think if the Orioles do go and win that third game and we're down two one in the series, I will feel completely different mm-hmm. about you know how that that how we feel. You know we're only down one game. We're we're in this. But looking up at two zero, it's re- it seems really hard. I mean, it's, it just seems really hard. I'm with you. I think if they can get past game three, it changes the whole dynamic of the uh, this series. Specifically, we and Chen are going against Jeremy Guthrie. If we lose to Jeremy Guthrie, I think it's the ultimate gut punch for Orioles fans because it's just like, gah, he was on our team, and then he left for Jason Hamill. He could have been our team, and he could have been the one winning that game three for us, even though, again, Orioles fans, that's completely illogical and delusional. <laughs> I can't believe you would think that way. But that's the way we as Baltimore fans are going to think. Um, so yeah, it's going to be a tough matchup for the Orioles, in all honesty, because, again, we've got some great Royals hitters that have great uh, numbers and splits against William Chen. And honestly, the splits against Jeremy Guthrie for the Orioles players are absolutely terrible. And it's on, you know, not like Nick Marquez and Adam Jones because you've got to kind of eliminate them. But you have to look at specifically like Nelson Cruz and Alejandro Adiasa who have multiple plate appearances, like 40-plus plate appearances against him, and they're still abysmal against Jeremy Guthrie. And Jeremy Guthrie has never given up a home run to any of the Orioles players. Zero. Out of like 170 plate appearances, zero home runs. This is not you trying to make me feel better. I'm sorry. I'm just t- telling it is. But if the Orioles manage to win that game, ooh, watch out. Because, again, if they play Vargas, who I would never play Vargas in the Game 4. I'm bringing Shields for Game 4. I I want to feel good again. But if we play Vargas, watch out again because we've got some great numbers against Vargas. I want this horrible feeling to go away. I, I If they win this game, I will feel I will be in a much better place. If not, well, it's going to be a very unpleasant rest of the October. Let me try to make you feel better. And um, one of the big concerns with the Kansas City Royals over a long period of time has been bullpen stability. Um, we've got absolute domination from Herrera, Davis, and Holland through these two first two games. But there has been concern about continual use day to day to day. And you're now entering a portion of the playoffs with this rainout. We're going to have five games in a row possibly. If the Orioles are able to stretch this out into game six and game seven, 
and Yost has to continue to use those guys, there is a possibility that you could get to that bullpen and take advantage of it. I, right I, now, it doesn't look like they have any immunity at all, but if you constantly have to bring them into games, maybe you can wear them down. I will say that I think the rainout helps the Orioles in the fact that anything to stop Kansas City's momentum is a good thing. I don't see how it can hurt the Orioles at all. I know there was talk about, okay, it's going to give the Royals a chance to rest up, but honestly, they've had a day to rest up. It didn't matter whether or not today was going to happen or not, so they get two days. Congratulations. That wasn't going to be a significant mover or shaker. I think the bigger mover and shaker is going to be five games in a row and how do the Royals respond. All right, so what we're saying is that our feelings are mixed, but overall not good. All I'm saying is I want to see a Danny Duffy, Kevin Gossman starting battle in the ALCS. Oy. I would just, oh my gosh, I'd be it's so excited. I mean, it's a possibility, I guess. Because you've got Chen and you've got Norris. And you got Tillman. Maybe, maybe, you know, Gossman gets in there. I would love it. I get so excited. I, I, don't, I don't care who's pitching as long as they're not uh, lasting 4.1 innings and breaking my heart. All right, fair point. All right, with that, I, I think we have talked ourselves either on or off the cliff or over a ledge. I don't know. What, what I can tell you is that there is more baseball to be had this week, and we will be there for it. Jake, should we go ahead and blow the save? Let's blow the save. Jake, both Game 1 and Game 2 of this ALCS have been monstrously long. And I can tell you that from being in those stands for all four hours of those games. And in 50-degree weather, and while it was raining for Game 1, and while it was pretty windy for Game Number 2, in my opinion, as well. Um, Jake, sitting in a ballpark for four hours on a cold October night, while it is magical... It also is quite tedious, taxing, and damn, I got really cold. I can't go with you here. I have no problem being in a ballpark for however long it takes for a playoff game. I understand where you're coming from. My point is, if Major League Baseball is trying to pick up the pace of play, demonstrating their product on a national stage for four hours has to be very difficult. And we got some of the... TPS ratings out and they said that some of their best ratings actually came at the 12 o'clock and 12 15 hour when the game was coming to a close but at the same point I find it very difficult that the casual fan that is going to come into the game and embrace the game as a new sport is going to do so after watching for four hours um, I think it's something that Major League Baseball has to continue to look at and figure out why are these games going for so long personally when I'm sitting at that game it certainly seemed like those breaks between innings were very long. Well, I, I think you're right, and I and I I think you're getting into the dangerous territory of almost switching topics because pace of play is, is one thing, but then there's also this whole area that I feel like Major League Baseball has given up control to the networks as far as how long their product lasts. Mm-hmm. You know, we joked earlier when we talked about pace of play, sell less beer in between innings. That's exactly what goes on during the the playoff games. More commercials, longer breaks. And there was a period in uh, game two, I believe it was. Maybe it's game one. It doesn't matter. There was a there was a game where we got started late because TBS wasn't ready. Right. And TV came first and baseball came second. So once Major League Baseball kind of hands over the game to become a product for these guys to make money, you're in a very dangerous territory, especially when you're trying to have the best, most pure game 
during the playoffs. I think Major League Baseball is in a tough spot of pleasing its sponsors and partners or fixing its product. Yeah. The only thing I'll say to that, Jake, is, and I'm going to bring up the thing that you absolutely hate to talk about, and that's soccer. And when you're in soccer, you're able to get through an entire half without going to commercial constantly, and that's 45 minutes of constant play. Um, Jake, there's got to be a way if the European Premier League can do it so well for 45 minutes and then 45 more minutes after that with no commercials in between and breaking away that Major League Baseball can find some way to get sponsorship information out there and monetary value from the TV networks during the game. Well, I'll tell you, it's it's a cultural difference. And and here here's what that cultural difference is. It is abhorrent to the Europeans that we take so many breaks and sell Budweiser and all the rest of it. On the other hand, it is completely abhorrent to Americans to see advertisements on jerseys. Okay. And and that's, I mean, I feel like that's the trade-off. You know what I mean? They, they have a different system. We have this system and both suck. That's fair. But again, European Premier League does have advertisements on jerseys, but it's not I, mean, I don't. I don't consider it to be very loud. Basically, advertisements. I think there has to be some kind of happy compromise. Um, I think that if we are going to take up some of the screen, I think we could take up some of the screen and do some sponsorship deals um, to basically not have so many commercials. I think you see similar to a situation between behind home plate. I think something like that could be easily exemplified of even just sponsoring, you know, the pitch track or you know something along the lines. Um, I, I just. Like I said, there's got to be some way to increase pace of play. And if it's limiting some of the commercials, that's great. But I understand there has to be some payback back to TV. And there has to be some ability to say, okay, we're not going to show the entire part of the game. We're going to include a sponsorship or a rolling ticker of advertisements during this game as well. And, uh, you know, I got snarky with you saying that I, I'd sit through whatever, but I'm not the problem. You yeah. know, they're going to get my money anyway. So baseball and its partners and its sponsors are really trying to reach, like you said, those casual fans. Uh, I just hope that there there is a solution for this that is not uh, t- too infringing on the game. Mm-hmm. You know, because again, we're seeing the the Arizona Fall League starting to mess with baseball. You know, it, putting the clock, putting yeah. new rules in to try to fix a problem, that, even though it's probably not going to increase it by more than eight to fifteen minutes per game. Right. Exactly. So, I, I just hope that the uh, the purity, if you will, of the game can be maintained in such a fashion that we, you know. We can have it both ways. Well, since we're all about purity here at Bird's Eye View, I think that's um, I think that's going to come pretty much everything to a close because this episode has been all about purity for those that have been listening to it since the very beginning. So, Jake, what's your prediction going forward for the next for the rest of the series? Tears, tears. Yeah, Baltimore. Um, I think I'm actually going to have to follow in line with Mr. English and uh, agree with him. I'm not looking forward to the end which i think is coming um i'm hoping that we're absolutely shocked and that magic does return i haven't predicted a single thing right yet so yeah but i think there's the, hoping i think the end is coming nice so prepare yourself baltimore fans the end of the magic could be coming um but with that jake i guess it's time that we wish our fans this is the saddest adieu adieu ever yeah it is but go ahead jake adieu adieu good night baltimore Good luck, O's. We won't stop. You're still here? It's over. 
Go home. Go.